Good morning. I want to welcome you guys again here to Seymour Christian. What a great time of worship, amen? So glad you're able to worship with us as we celebrate our Savior. A couple things just before we get going. I know that uh, last week, if you were here with us toward the end of service, we had a special prayer time for little Aaliyah Wildrich, who had brain surgery this week. And I just want to report to you that that surgery was a success. We want to praise God for that. The doctors actually said that, that what happened in that was, a, was nothing short of a miracle. And we're going to have an opportunity for you to hear uh, more about that from the Wildriches. They really want to share with you what God has done uh, in and through Aaliyah this past week. Uh, and also to thank you guys for your thoughts and prayers. But they're not able to be here today. But next week, next Sunday, they're going to share just an update and a report. But I want you to know that God is good. And we praise him uh, for the work that he's done in their lives. And thank you for partnering with this church in prayer for that family. So we're going to take a moment. We're just going to thank God. We're going to pray before we continue on with our service today. So let's pray together. God, what a great God you are. And we prayed in uh, under your authority, Lord, last week, knowing that you are the great physician. And uh, Lord, we heard even from Aaliyah herself last week, uh, just the heart that she has for you. And we've seen that play out this week. And Lord, we just thank you for working with her, for working with the doctors that are working with her, for working in her life, in her body, Lord. Uh, we thank you for the, the miracle that has happened in her life. And uh, Lord, we know that she's not completely out of the woods yet, but we know that you are walking through her with this, and their family knows that beyond a shadow of a doubt. And I thank you, Lord, for being the God who hears our prayers. So we celebrate that, Lord, today. We thank you for that family, for the faith that Aaliyah's had, uh, even the faith of a young child like that to show me to show all of us, Lord, what it means to put our trust and hope and faith in you alone. So we thank you for that. God, we're looking forward to continue to hear the great work that you're going to do in and through her life and in that family. And we ask all this in the precious name of Jesus and the church together said, amen. amen. Yes, we celebrate that this morning. Well, one of my favorite childhood books uh, was Shel Silverstein's Where the Sidewalk Ends. You'll see a picture of the cover up here. How many of you guys are familiar with this book? All right? Yeah. It's uh, beloved by many for a long time, and it, it's somewhat controversial in times because some of the, the crudeness of the jokes that are in there and different things. Uh, but there was one particular poem that Shel Silverstein wrote uh, that really stuck out to me as a kid. I can't really tell you why. You might find out later on in the service here why this has meant so much to me. Uh, but I actually had it memorized at one time. My mom would read this to me, and I think she read it to me for a particular reason, and then I just committed it to memory. And I'm not going to be able to memorize it and recite it back for you guys today. But let me share a little bit of this with you and tell me if this rings a bell. Sarah Cynthia Sylvia Stout would not take the garbage out. How many of you guys know this poem? All right. She'd scour the pots and scrape the pans, candy the yams and spice the yams, and though her daddy would scream and shout, she simply would not take the garbage out. So it piled up to the ceilings, coffee grounds, potato peelings, brown bananas, rotten peas, chunks of sour cottage cheese. It filled the can, it covered the floor, it cracked the window and blocked the door. And I'm going to go to the end here because it goes on for a long time as Sarah just refuses to take the garbage out. At last the garbage reached so high that it finally touched the sky and all the neighbors moved away and none of her friends would come to play. And finally Sarah Cynthia Stout said, okay, I'll take the garbage out. 
But then, of course, it was too late. The garbage reached across the strait from New York to the Golden Gate, and there in the garbage she did hate. Poor Sarah met an awful fate that I can now relate, that I cannot now relate, because it's a kid's story, of course, because the hour is much too late. But children, remember Sarah Stout and always take the garbage out. Now, I think I know why my mom really pushed that one on me. She's trying to get me to do my chores. Uh, but there's something within us that just makes us not want to do the things that we know we're supposed to do, to put them off until sometimes it's just too late. Now, last week we read Zephaniah, and I mentioned that it was the last of the minor prophets to prophesy in what we call the pre-exile period. And if you remember, God had promised that if the people didn't turn from their ways, they'd be conquered, and they were. Its capital city of Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed, and people lived in exile, basically prisoners in a foreign land under the reign of Babylon for about 50 years. And then in 538, 539 BC, Babylon got a new king. And this new king Cyrus allowed about 50,000 of these displaced Jews who had been ripped from their homeland. Everything had been taken from them. Their temple had been destroyed. He allowed those who were living in exile to return back to their homeland and to begin rebuilding the temple of God. You can read about what happened in this time in the book of Ezra. So the people had been allowed to come and rebuild the temple, and things were starting to go all right. They laid the foundation. They were excited. They were building on what God had told them to do. But it doesn't last long. And that's where we find ourselves today in the book of Haggai. Now, some say Haggai. I've also heard it Haggai. I think I've heard it both ways. I think the actual pronunciation is Haggai. No, we're not going to say that, so I'm just going to call him Haggai from now on. But as you read Haggai this week, it's going to feel different from the other minor prophets that we've looked at. This has such a different tone than what we've been reading over the last few weeks. And it's almost like a breath of fresh air because we've been reading so much of the doom and the gloom and the things that have been these judgments put against God's people and the nations surrounding him. There's been a lot of poetry in a lot of what we've read, and so a lot of imagery and things that have been honestly confusing for us. But in the book of Haggai, we find just straight prose, just telling it like it is. Not a lot of imagery that we don't understand. It's pretty straightforward. And there's four messages that I want us to see in the book of Haggai this morning and this week as we go through it. These four messages were intended for the people of Judah, those who were now rebuilding the temple. And we're going to see that these four messages also have some truth for us as well. So if you've got your Bible, take it out and open up to Haggai. Remember, if you can't find that, there's no shame in that. Look in the table of contents or, uh, you know, look at Zephaniah and maybe turn the next page. And you can't find Zephaniah, once again, go to the table of contents. No shame in that at all. Haggai is one of the smaller books of the Minor Prophets. Obadiah, uh, Dan preached on that many weeks ago. It's just one page. This is about, a, mm, it's two pages in my Bible. Your Bible might be different, but it's not very long. And so again, I encourage you this week, a goal for you is to read the book of Haggai. You can do it in probably less than 10 minutes. And I encourage you to read it. But hopefully this morning, we're going to see some of the messages that God has through the prophet Haggai and how we can apply those to our lives. So the first message we're going to look at comes in chapter 1, starting in verse 2. It says, This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, 
The time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Now, you know it's not good when something starts off and God says, these people, right? You know how that is when you're raising your kids? Any of you who have children uh, and your, your kid maybe acted up, what do you say? You say, you just wait till mom or dad comes home, and then they come home and you say, your kids, right? Whenever we refer to them in the third person, we know something's going on. And God says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. See, the people, they'd return to their homeland. They'd been sent to rebuild the temple, but about 16 years has gone by since the time they were released to go back to their home and begin the temple. And they're still saying, it's not time. Now, have you ever bought a house and then immediately decided to change everything in it? You walk in, you sign the papers, you start knocking down the walls, uh, repainting everything, just destroying the whole place and rebuilding it, but you have no plan? How many of you have done that? Hopefully nobody, right? Dangerous things will happen if you don't have a plan. You'll do some things that you wish you hadn't, or you'll, you, after you live in it for a while, you'll see some things differently. Because you acted so quickly, you realize that you had made a mistake. So you have to have a plan, and sometimes it is wise to wait. When I decided to take the role here as the lead pastor, I received a lot of advice. And the number one word of advice I got from friends, colleagues, other pastors, books I read, said, wait to make big changes. That's pretty wise advice. Get to know the lay of the land, right? Learn about the people and the culture. Don't walk, knock down metaphorical walls that might be the foundation. Sometimes it's wise to wait. But these people... These people have been waiting for 16 years, and they say it's not time. So what were they waiting on? Well, we get a little insight into what was going on in the book of Ezra once again. In Ezra chapter 4, in the first couple of verses, we see that the surrounding enemies, most notably the Samaritans, had been making it difficult for the people to build. And out of fear and frustration, they had held off. See, they weren't waiting for plans for God. They knew exactly what they were supposed to do. God had already given them an assignment. They weren't praying it over. You know, that's what we sometimes do before we make a big decision. They were afraid. And I'll let you in on a little secret about me. I'm a planner. Now, for those of you who don't know me well, you might say, I've seen some of the decisions you've made. I don't think that you're a planner. You just seem to kind of make it up as you go. But those who know me really well know that I am methodical about making plans, that I'll think things meticulously through to the end, often uh, to a fault, usually to a fault. My family can attest that when I have a decision to be make, not even just a big decision, it can be the smallest little decision. I'll make lists, I'll do research, I'll Google it, I'll make the pros and cons. I want to know all the information before I pull the trigger. And while that can be a great trait, it can often be a problem because it often slows things down or halts things that really just need to happen. Now, my daughter reminded me yesterday, she said that yesterday marked the one-year anniversary of when we moved here to Seymour. And you, uh, many of you know we bought a house. Many of you helped us clean it out, and uh, we unloaded it. And months went by. I've talked a little bit about some of our, our issues with unpacking, getting it set up. But months went by, almost till Christmas, and we had no furniture in our living room. So this is what it looked like in our house. You'd come in, and there were two lawn chairs and some tubs that the TV was sitting on, and then just boxes everywhere. 
And that was our living room for months and months and months. Now, see, I didn't want to make a rash decision and buy the wrong furniture. So I was doing all the research on what kind of couch we needed and how it was going to fit. And we had family meetings and charts and pictures and all the, which ones do we want? How do we want this to be? Because I didn't want to make a mistake. And that's wise to a point, right? Wanted the whole family to like it. But at some point, you just have to make a decision. I remember when, we, when I'd crossed the line with my family and I showed them like the 1000th picture of couches and one of my won't tell you what, who just looked at me and says, I don't even care, just buy a couch. <laughs> well, now we have a couch and we love it. And it was a great decision. So surely I learned my lesson, right? No. Slowly but surely over the months, we've been accumulating, usually based on my waiting for so long, the right things to make this room a room. Uh, but we still have the TV on tubs and a cardboard box for our drinks and different things. I just will take forever to make these decisions sometimes. But baby steps. Now, honestly, the stakes are pretty low if we would get this wrong. We might be out some money. We end up we not like it. But it's not the end of the world. At the very most, uh, we just out some time and some money. But oftentimes, there are decisions that I'm waiting on or you're waiting on that have much, much greater consequences. See, I want all the info. I want to have a plan. But I'm often afraid. It can be wise to wait, but at some point, fear takes over. I want all the info, but God always, or God doesn't always tell us the whole plan. We have a saying in our house. Uh, it applies to everything except furniture buying. It says, we don't always know his plan, but all he asks us to do is the next right thing. I don't know if you've heard that before or not, but we say that, my wife has said it to me all the time when I'm trying to see the end of the road. And she says, God has asked us to do the next right thing. But these people, they weren't just driven by fear. There was something else going on. Let's look at the next verse. It says, Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now let's understand what's going on here. Paneled houses in that time. For us now, paneling is something usually we put up cheap to get things going. But back in the day, if you had a paneled house... You were living in luxury. And these people said, it's not time to build. Let's wait. We're not sure what's going on. And God says, is it time for you to build your paneled houses that you guys are all living in? See, they had used the excuse of their fear to keep them from building God's temple, but they had spent the last 16 years building their own temples. They'd been busy but they had grown more concerned about taking care of their own lives and they'd forgotten what they were sent there to do. See, they'd become pros. Maybe you're a pro. Professional crastinator, right? A procrastinator, isn't that what it is? Gloria Pitzer in her novel she, about procrastination, she wrote this. She said, procrastination is my sin. It brings me naught but sorrow. I know that I should change it. In fact, I will tomorrow, right? Now, I don't know if you think of procrastination as a sin, 
but it's the cousin to the very sin we talked about last week in the book of Zephaniah, apathy. Unchecked procrastination leads to apathy. See, waiting to do something until you have all the facts or until you prayed about it is one thing. That's wisdom. But the definition of procrastination is this. To put off intentionally the doing of something that should be done. Something that should be done. Putting off something that should be done. And when we know what we should do, but we hold off on it, no matter how much we might work towards something, we're always going to be frustrated. And at some point, we become pros. We think of plenty of excuses for why we aren't doing what we should be doing. We become the very example of Sarah Cynthia Sylvia Stout. She just didn't want to take the garbage out. See, it's one thing to procrastinate cleaning your house or taking out the garbage or picking out furniture, but sometimes procrastinating on what God has asked us to do has other effects. Look at verse 5. It says, Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful attention to your ways. Listen for that phrase. You're going to hear it throughout the book as you read this week. Give careful attention to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. How many of you can relate to that? Where is this money going? Have you ever felt like this? You took on that promotion thinking it would fulfill you, but you're still not satisfied. You thought that if you could just get that guy to like you, everything would be right in your life. You'd feel better about yourself. You're working hard, but you don't feel like you're getting ahead. He says in verse 9, You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why? Because, declares the Lord, because of my house, which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with your own house. So there wasn't anything wrong with the people building nice houses. And there isn't anything wrong with you having a nice house or me having a nice house or picking out the right furniture for your living room or, or wanting, earning that promotion or saving for that vacation. But the problem happens when we put off the things of God, even for good things. And this brings us to the first takeaway that we have in this first message from Haggai. Misplaced priorities cause us to miss God's blessings. Misplaced priorities cause us to miss God's blessings. Procrastinating for the wrong things causes us to miss God's blessings. See, the people had focused on the wrong things and missed out on what God was trying to do in their lives. But he says it's not too late. They can change. Back up a verse. He says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Once again, here's this phrase. Give careful attention to your ways. Think about what you're doing. He says, go up to the mountain and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure, pleasure in it and be honored. He says, you've been waiting for just the right moment God says, just go do it. Go up to the mountain. Gather the wood. Build the house. Just do it. Stop making excuses. Get to work. Go 
bring your lumber and build. Not for your glory, not so that you can feel good or enjoy it, but for me, he says. Work at honoring me. So we have to put God's interests over our own. And the text says in verse 12, that the leaders and all the people, they listened and they obeyed. And God has this phrase that he says throughout the book of Haggai. As you read this week, you're going to see it. It says, I am with you. Do these things. Go, build for me, and I am with you. And the people got to work doing the right things. Misplaced priorities cause us to miss God's blessings. But that's not the end of the story. In chapter 2, we see a month has gone by. Haggai gives us these dates for a reason. Help us see, this isn't years and years later. Just a month after God had told them, get busy doing what I ask you to do. Stop procrastinating. You're missing my blessings. They go, we got it, God. And one month later, things have changed. The people are getting discouraged. We read in verse 2, or verse 3, it says, Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? See, there, there were those who were old enough to remember the splendor and the greatness of Solomon's temple, the temple that had been destroyed, and they were discouraged. God has built this, but doesn't, it doesn't look anything like it used to. It can't match the glory of this place. And so the folks that had been there, the older folks that had been part of what God had done, part of seeing that temple in all its glory, they were discouraged and they were bringing everybody down. They thought this doesn't even compare to the old temple. And guess what? They were right. It didn't. Solomon's temple was ornate and majestic. In today's dollars, it's estimated, this, isn't, uh, this is just a conservative amount, but it's estimated that Solomon's temple cost about $4 billion to build. This thing was massive, and it was magnificent. It was a masterpiece. And this new temple, it's not so fancy. This doesn't look like what we used to have. I'm bummed out. Why are we spending our time doing this? This isn't even close to what we used to have. Now, there's nothing wrong with nostalgia, but often, especially as we get older, I find myself falling into this already, it can keep us from seeing what God is doing in our lives today. There's an old quote that says, nostalgia, it's not what it used to be. Let that sink in for a minute. See, it's good to learn from our past, to reflect on our past, but often we only remember the good things. And those who remember the old temple couldn't help but wish for what we often call the good old days. The temple was beautiful. It represents a time when they had plenty, when things were seemingly going their way. But we know better, don't we? We've been reading about what's been happening during these times when they had this amazing temple. This is the same temple that was defiled with worshiping other gods, with temple prostitution, sacrificing children, taking advantage of the poor and marginalized, all the stuff we've been reading about in the Minor Prophets. Those were the good old days to these people. I want to start reading in verse 4 of chapter 2. 
It says, but now, God says, be strong, Zerubbabel. We're going to talk about him in a moment. Be strong, Joshua, son of Zodiac, the, or Jazadak, sorry, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. He says, be strong, get to work. Don't worry about what things used to look like. For I am with you. He tells him again, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. Then in verse 6, this is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. Yeah, this temple isn't ornate as the last one. but God says, I've got big plans for this place. God is telling him, I'm on the move. I'm doing something here that is bigger than the temple. And here we see Haggai prophesying about the coming of Jesus. Jesus is often referred to as desired by nations. We sing about this at Christmas. Come desired of nations, come. Fix in us your humble home. And here we see a twofold prophecy. This temple, even though it's not like Solomon's, will be the place that Jesus himself enters. And through Jesus, then we will become the holy temple. God has bigger plans for this place than just silver or gold. God has bigger plans than a fancy new building. It might not be as big and fancy on the outside, but it's built on a strong, sure foundation. And here's the second big takeaway from Haggai's message. Don't compare what God has done in others' past. Look forward to what God is doing in your future. Don't try to compare what God has done in others' past. Look forward to what God is doing in your future. Don't get stuck in the past. Yes, that place was amazing. He says, but don't get stuck there. Theodore Roosevelt said, comparison is the thief of joy. And this is so hard for us. We see what others have and we want it even as Christians. Not just material things. We see the great marriages that the people around us have and we so desperately want that. And it steals our joy. We see the way God has blessed others' businesses and we think, why won't God bless me that way? This is especially difficult for those of us that are in church leadership. I mean, I've been blessed to have been part of many growing churches and remember hearing leaders from other churches come to me complaining about the growth that our church was experiencing. They were often missing what God was doing among their very people. And now being a leader in a church that has had its share of rough times, I can find myself looking at my other pastor friends and comparing. Those of us who have been here for a long time might struggle with this too. I mean, this church isn't as big as it once was. Maybe you miss the good old days. And while there were certainly good things that happened in our past, there's a lot of things that I never want to see us repeat again. 
And we can't let comparing what God's done in others' past or even our own past keep us from missing the amazing future that God's laying right before us. Reminded of Philippians chapter 3. It says, brothers and sisters, I do not consider yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Misplaced priorities cause us to miss God's blessings. Don't compare what God has done in others' pasts. Look forward to what God is doing in your future. And then we come to the third message in Haggai. If you're following along, we're in chapter 2, starting in verse 10. So this is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priests what the law says. If someone carries consecrated meat in the fold of their garment, and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, olive oil, or other food, does it become consecrated? The priest answered, no. And Haggai said, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Yes, the priest replied, it becomes defiled. Then Haggai said, so it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer there is defiled. So what's going on here? This is confusing for us today. Let me see if I can break it down as simply as possible. In 1 Corinthians, there's a passage that says, bad company corrupts good character. You've probably heard that before. Maybe your mama told, told you that. And God is saying we know that's true. If we allow sin in our lives, it makes us unclean. But the opposite isn't true. Just being around goodness doesn't make you good. Just coming to church doesn't make you good. And here we see the theme that we've heard over and over and over again in the Minor Prophets. God wants our hearts. God wants our hearts. Bad company corrupts good character. Going to church doesn't make you right if your heart isn't right. And God tells the people in Haggai, your priorities, they weren't right. Your hearts were still full of sin. You've not been living as you once were. Now, these aren't calls to stop child sacrifice or worshiping idols or gross misuses of power like we've seen in the other minor prophets. This seems minor. It seems like this isn't a big deal. Why is God worried about this? But the people's hearts still weren't right. They might not have been doing the horrible things they once were, but they were still seeking after something that wasn't God. Matthew 6.33 tells us, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. well I know I need to wrap up here, but there's one more message that Haggai has. At the end of chapter 2, starting in verse 20, it says, the word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. God tells the people that they will one day be victorious. 
And some good things are going to happen to this guy with a funny name, Zerubbabel. (laughs) Say that ten times fast. Zerubbabel was the governor of Judah who was in charge of this temple project. And what we learn later about Zerubbabel, we're going to see him show up in the New Testament. He was chosen to be part of the lineage of Jesus. And God tells the leaders in verse 4 of chapter 2, he says, Be strong. I am with you. It's not too late. No matter how many times you started and stopped, it's not too late to focus your heart on God and build his temple. Whether this is the first or the hundred and first time you've tried, it's not too late. Reminded of a passage we've heard over and over again in these minor prophets, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. He gives us time and time and time again another chance to get it right. In this fourth message we see in the book of Haggai, when we belong to God, we are chosen. and He is with us. We sang about this today. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop working. He is with us. We think, if I can just get through this season at work, if I can just get through this project at home, if I can just get the kids through school, whatever it is that you've been putting off for days, weeks, or maybe years, it's not too late. I couldn't help but think this past week as I was reading through this, um, some personal conviction. Not about choosing furniture, stuff as insignificant as that, but about the way I've been living my life the way I've been leading. And I've said throughout this this study of the minor prophets that I don't want us to ever look at these prophecies and try to line them up with our lives like, oh, well, God told them this and this is what's happening here and uh, this natural disaster is because of this, that, and the other. That's playing God in a way that we just don't understand. But I can't help but feel convicted when I read this. Man, sometimes I've been just like the people of Judah. I'm wanting to have all of the answers before I move. And God's saying, just do the next right thing. Go, grab the wood, start building. I think that applies to us as a church. We're sometimes waiting for just the right things to happen. And God's saying, just go, follow what I have commanded you to do. Start today. Or maybe we need to restart today. And as we close, I want you to think about a phrase that appears several times throughout Haggai. I've always give, already given you a heads up on it. God says, give careful thought to your ways. He repeats that several times, saying, really search your heart. And I want us to do the same thing. I want to put some questions up here on the screen. And I want us to take some time, maybe we want to write them down, take a picture of them, and ponder these, consider these this week. First question, what are you building? What are you building? Are you building your own temple or are you building God's temple? Number two, where have you misplaced priorities, focusing on building your own little kingdom instead of his kingdom? Has comparison caused you to just give up? 
as comparison, looking at what others have or what might have been in your past, has it caused you to just give up? My marriage can't be any better. I'm just going to give up. I'm never going to be able to do those things God has asked me to do. He's told me to do these things, but his comparison just robbed you of the ability to do them in your mind. Are you trying to get back to some feeling you once had in your walk with the Lord? Are you waiting for things to be just right? And then you'll do what God has asked you to do. His comparison caused you to just give up. And then the third question, has God given you an assignment that you've just been putting off? Has God given you an assignment that you've just been putting off? See, God's word to the people of Judah rings true for us. Go up, bring down the timber, and get building. See, God isn't calling us to build a significant physical structure to honor his name. He's given us a much grander temple to honor his name. Much more important, much more beautiful than Solomon ever had. Through Jesus, God's spirit no longer lives in a building, but he lives within us. We celebrated that this morning as we took communion, that we are now the Lord's temple. He lives in us. We take him within us. He is with us. Just like Zerubbabel was chosen to be part of the line of Jesus, we are chosen to be God's holy temple. So don't miss out on the blessings God has because we're not listening to what he's asked us to do. Or worse yet, we're procrastinating. Our priorities are mixed up and we're missing what God has right in front of us. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this message from the book of Haggai. Lord, and I know that in my own heart and I know in many of us, we, we look at those questions and something immediately springs to mind we've been putting off doing that you've asked us to do that lord you have equipped us to do you tell us that we're equipped for every good work in your name lord help us to not wait any longer but to move to go up to the mountain to grab the wood and start building lord the things the good things that happen around us to others the good things that have happened in our own past the desires that we have to see your temple built lord May they not rob us of the joy in the moment. May we recognize that you have a great future plan for us as a church, but Lord, as, as individuals, as your temples standing in this community, you have big plans for us. Help us not to miss them, Lord, with our misplaced priorities. God, I pray that you would reveal to each and every one of us this week those assignments that we've been putting off that we would do them not for our glory, not for our gain, but for your honor. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.